Uh, I want to begin by telling you about this man. Uh, this man, some of you might have heard of the story of Henry Garrick. Henry Garrick. Now, Henry was uh, a chaplain uh, during World War II for the American forces. Uh, he had ministered to uh, the, the soldiers just after the D-Day landings, both soldiers who were traumatized, soldiers who were wounded. Uh, but what perhaps made the biggest impact uh, on Henry Garrick's life uh, was that he was there towards the end of the war. He was there at the liberation uh, of Dachau uh, concentration camp. And so he caught a real sight of the true horrors Uh, of what the Nazi regime had done. Um, However, in 1945, late 1945, he was called into his commanding officer's room, uh, and his commanding officer said, I want to give you uh, an assignment that is literally the most hated assignment in all of the Allied forces. I want you to go to Nuremberg to be the chaplain for the 15 highest-ranking Nazi uh, prisoners there. Uh, He initially said, no, no, I don't don't want to do that. Uh, His commanding officer insisted, and and he went. He went uh, and spent almost a year in Nuremberg. Uh, Now, when he initially met some of these very famous prisoners, some of you might have heard of them, uh, Hermann Goering, uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop, some of the top Nazi officials, the the masterminds behind the whole regime, uh, when he initially made contact with them, they they were very reluctant to speak to him, wouldn't speak to him, in fact, Uh, and his first contact with them wasn't positive. In fact, he he says in his book, um, I was terribly frightened not physically, but by the absolute depths of evil in these men. They had committed crimes unthinkable to me. But slowly over the weeks and months, the men at Nuremberg became to me just lost souls that I was asked to help. And so he ran chapel services. And of the 15 prisoners there, over 13, oh, well, thir- thir- not over, 13 attended uh, weekly cha- the weekly chapel services that he organized. Um, in June 1946, his tour of duty was over, and he was going home to his wife and his family. But he actually, over the time that he'd spent there, made such an impact on these men that together they, they wrote a letter to his wife, to ask him to stay on. Um, He consulted with his wife and and agreed, both agreed that he should stay. Uh, And he stayed right to the end until October 1946, the 16th of October, when these men were executed. And in his memoirs, he says that he is convinced that eight of the 15 highest-ranking Nazi officers the masterminds behind the regime, eight of them made a credible confession of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. I don't know how you feel about that when you hear that story. Perhaps you're conflicted when you hear that story. A lot of people are. Uh, In fact, when news got out of what Henry Garrick had done in his assignment, uh, he says this, 
in his memoirs. I had a box worthy of filling four, a four-drawer filing cabinet, letters of hatred for me from all over the United States, calling me a Nazi lover, a Jew hater, a betrayer, and demanding that I be executed along with the Nazi criminals. And actually, at one level, is that not an understandable reaction, isn't it? Imagine just for a second that you had been uh, the sole survivor of your family who had been executed by the Nazi officers. Is that not an understandable longing in every human heart? We want justice for evil. Is that not right? Is that not a right reaction? We want justice for evil. And the tension then between a God of mercy and a God of justice and how we're supposed to hold those two things together is what chapter four of this book is all about. Now, if you uh, have ever read a children's Bible, uh, I have a couple in my house at the moment with small children, a children's Bible, you will know that this story of Jonah always ends with the, in a children's Bible, almost without exception, with the happy ending of chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah went, finally went, to, to speak, to preach God's word, bring God's message to these Ninevites. They listened to what he said. They turned from their evil ways. And in response, God turned from the disaster that he had in, intended to bring upon them. Happy ending. And chapter 4 ends on the cutting room floor. But I want to suggest that the real punchline of the whole book is actually in chapter 4 for us to wrestle with. How are we meant to hold together these two notions of justice and mercy? I want uh, to point out just, uh, just to show you that, that what we see here is Jonah's hypocrisy. It's a bit like the beginning of the book. Jonah's happy to say one thing, but then reacts in an entirely different way. Uh, at the end of the book, we see that Jonah wants justice for the Ninevites, not mercy. He wants justice, not mercy for the Ninevites. But what does he want for himself? He wants for himself mercy, not justice for himself. And then the book ends with a question. Effectively, what about you? What about you? And I just want to take you through those three, those three ideas uh, this morning for these next few minutes. First then, Jonah wants justice for Nineveh, not mercy. There's a, there's a word play that we miss when it's translated into English um, uh, in verses, chapter 3, verse 10, and then verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. When God saw what they did... They, uh, and how they turned from their evil ways. God had compassion in them and did not bring upon them literally the evil that he intended, that he had threatened. And then chapter 4, verse 1, but to Jonah, that seemed evil. And he became very angry. And so you see Jonah's uh, tension here as he understands that God has had compassion on these evil people and turn from the evil that he planned to bring upon them, Jonah thinks that is disgusting. In fact, Jonah thinks God has turned evil 
for failing to bring the disaster upon them that in his mind they so clearly deserve. Um, and it's worth remembering that, that the people of Nineveh were part of a, what is and what was a brutal Assyrian regime at the time. Uh, a, a, a regime notorious in the ancient world for being extremely violent uh, and cruel uh, towards their enemies. In his little commentary uh, on this book, Richard Cogan writes this. This is a description of uh, and a summary of some of the historical evidence that we've got, a description of what these uh, Assyrians were like towards their enemies. So when they captured a city, this is what they did. They skinned, skewered, and beheaded captured leaders. They butchered captive soldiers, burned children alive, and raped, enslaved, and deported their women. This is a horrific, a horrific regime. Think Nazis. And so I want you to see that actually at one level, this is a reasonable reaction to Jonah, isn't it? God is supposed to be a God who cares about and gives justice, is he not? In fact, when Jonah speaks in verse 2, he's actually quoting one of the most famous memory verses that every Jewish person would have learned. Uh, it's, it comes from a famous incident. It comes from a famous incident in uh, the history of Israel where uh, at the Exodus, when God rescued his people from Egypt uh, and brought them out, uh, Jonah, or, sorry, Jonah, Moses spoke to God uh, and asked God to, to reveal to him more of, of what he's like, uh, what his character is, uh, what is the truth about him. And God spoke these words to Moses. Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 and 7, we read this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stopped there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God revealed himself as both, both a God of amazing forgiveness, grace, and compassion, and a God who's committed to justice. And Jonah quotes this memory verse back to God in verse 2. And says, look, I know, I know, I know my Bible. I, I, was, I went along to Sabbath school as well, and I was taught the memory verses. I know you're a God of grace and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love. I know all that. But what, what about the second part of the verse? Where's that? Where's that bit? The bit where you're not letting the guilty go unpunished. Where, that's, that's the bit I want. And yet that's missing, isn't it? That's missing right now. And Jonah is outraged by what he sees. In his mind, these people are, are unpleasant, despicable criminals, guilty of some of the worst crimes of human history. And yet God seems to be offering them forgiveness, grace, and compassion. To Jonah, it just seems wrong. It just seems wrong. And the question then we have for us is, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? And I, I don't suspect there's many of us here this morning who have people in our lives 
that we would honestly say that we hate or fear like Jonah clearly hated and feared the Ninevites. I don't think there would be anyone. But it's not too difficult to do that flight of imagination, is it? Especially in Northern Ireland. Imagine your family was the victim of paramilitary violence here. You lost someone you love to their crimes. Would you not want to say, I don't want you to forgive them. I want justice on them. Or imagine, again, not too, too long ago, far away admittedly, but not too long ago in Sri Lanka, where those terrible atrocities took place, those bombs were set off in a systematic way all around, um, uh, in, all around the, the island, where Christians were targeted and attacked. Many lost their lives, many injured. Is it not an understandable reaction to say, I, I can't forgive them. I want justice on them, Lord, please, and quickly. Is that not an understandable reaction? Jonah's not a madman here. I think Jonah is very human. Jonah's reaction on God's compassion was absolute outrage. These people deserve their punishment and should not have got off scot-free. And if you want to understand, again, the strength of Jonah's reaction, uh, there's another little book in the Old Testament uh, in the, the 12 prophets at the end. It's only over a couple of pages in your Bible, the book of Nahum. It is also a book about Nineveh. It's a book about Nineveh. And it's the only other book that finishes with a question. Uh, and in that book, you get a, a fuller description of what the crimes committed by the Ninevites were. What, what life was really like in that city. Uh, and Nahum, that prophet, describes Nineveh as a city filled with lies and bloodshed, filled with exploitation and witchcraft. These people were really guilty of terrible crimes. In fact, Nahum finishes his book by saying this, nothing can heal you, speaking about Nineveh, nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty. For for Jonah, uh, as he looks out at these people who are Immoral, idolatrous, vicious, cruel, and brutal. He thinks it's scandalous that God would let them off. For him, God is too soft. God is too soft. But of course, God is not soft. God is not soft. If you've even read the book of Jonah, you'll see that God, he was angry at evil at the beginning of the book. Uh, God is not condoning, uh, he's not excusing their evil and cruelty. God was really angry and he was ready to destroy the city. But he's also a God who's committed to showing compassion on all who would repent, turn back to him, turn away from their old life, turn to him and ask for forgiveness. God is a God of justice, but also a God of compassion towards those who would repent. The question for all of us is, how on earth are we supposed to fit these two things together? Mercy and justice. How do they fit together? 
Of course, Jonah couldn't understand that. Uh, at his point in human history, he wasn't able to... F- How does that? It doesn't work. It's impossible to fit the two of them together. God, you have to choose one. That's his point. And choose justice. But of course, we stand at a very different point in human history. We stand this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we catch a glimpse at the cross of how mercy and justice fit together. In the Bible, there are two days of God's punishment and justice. Two days. One is the final day, the final day, when there will be a final reckoning. That's the Bible's prediction. There'll be a final reckoning when all justice will be done and will be seen to be done. And so people like Jimmy Savile, who seem to get away with it uh, and die in peace, well, there will be a day of reckoning. He will have to answer for his crimes. No one ever escapes. Everyone will have to stand before God and give an answer for how they've lived their lives. And left to our own devices, left to our own devices, there will be one verdict on all of us. Failure. Failure. We have all failed. Due to our selfishness and pride, lust and laziness, due to our our deep, deep character flaws, we are all failures. We've all failed to show kindness and respect to those people we rub shoulders with. In fact, we we often hurt those we love the most, the most. And of course, we've failed to honor God. We've failed to obey him. We've failed to live in his world, his way. We've all thought we've known better uh, and gone our own way. And so the verdict left to our own devices, the verdict on us all on that final day of judgment and justice would be failure and would be punishment. But there is another day, wonderfully, there's another day. And that day has actually happened. It happened 2,000 years ago. When God became one of us, stepped onto the stage of human history, lived a life that we should have lived, a model life, a perfect life, and yet went to the cross on one day. And there he took the penalty, the full force of God's justice for sinners those who have lived a self-centered, me-first life. He took the full force of God's justice and, and swapped places with us so that anyone, anyone from Nineveh, Nuremberg to Belfast today, anybody who comes to him and admits their guilt, asks for forgiveness, accepts that Jesus is who he claimed to be and really died for me and asked to be forgiven, we can receive the mercy of God. But I want you to see there's a choice to be made. There's a, we all have to make a choice because God is also the God of justice. And so the choice is you either let Jesus take your punishment and bear your justice for you or you take it yourself. That is the only choice that we all have to make. Because God will not let guilt go unpunished. And so you see at the cross, it's mercy and justice fit together in God's great plan. 
something that Jonah couldn't fully understand, but something hopefully that we can begin to understand and begin to marvel at. And so the challenge for you, I, again, I don't know all of you here this morning, the challenge for you is if you haven't made that choice to let Jesus take your punishment, if you haven't come to God, talked to him, admitted your guilt, and asked for his mercy, then God intends for you to do that today. Because here's God's, here's God's attitude. Here's his intention towards us. Ezekiel 18. I take no pleasure... Uh, Sorry, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Verse 32, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. Turn to me. Escape the disaster that awaits you. Because God is a God of mercy. But he's also the God of justice. What's Jonah's attitude? Jonah's attitude is, I want justice for them, not mercy. I want justice for them, not mercy. Which takes us to the second idea in Jonah chapter 4, is that Jonah wanted mercy, not justice for himself. He wanted mercy, not justice for himself. Jonah uh, packs his bags, gets his suitcase all organized, and leaves the city. But I want you to notice what direction he goes. He's from Israel, he's over now in the east at Nineveh. To go home, he has to go west. But what direction does he go? East. He goes east. Why? Why does he go east? Why does he go east? He's not going home. He goes east because actually there's a hill east. And he can get a good vantage point by sitting on that hill. Why? Because in verses 3 and 4, Jonah has made an ultimatum. God, I would rather die than live in a world where you don't punish your enemies. So it's, what's the ultimatum? It's either them or me. They die or kill me. Right? So he's made his ultimatum, and now he goes to sit on the hill and see what happens. His hope is that even at this late 11th hour, God will change his mind and wipe the city off the face of the earth. That's what he's hoping. And so he's sitting, sulking and seething on this hill, waiting for God to do something. Um, But what does God do? Well, just as God provided um, a storm, just as God provided a fish, now God provides again. This time he provides a plant. He provides a plant. A plant that seems to grow up exceptionally quickly, grows up in one day, and it is an organic parasol to keep the, the UV rays of uh, Jonah's bald spot, okay? So it's a place for him to kind of hunker down, be comfortable under the blazing sun to watch what happens. And Jonah, w- verse, uh, verse 6, we read, And God provided this vine, this plant, and made it grow over Jonah, uh, and give him shade uh, for his head, and ease his discomfort. And he was very happy about the vine. So he's very happy about the plant. He was very angry in verse 1. Now he's very happy. You see, Jonah is someone who says, Look, I, I, I'm delighted. I'm delighted when you show mercy and kindness to me. That's, that's brilliant. More of that, please. Kindness and mercy to me when I don't deserve it, when I'm sitting and sulking and seething at you. At you and I've even had the audacity to call you evil. I love that grace and mercy and kindness to me, but not to them. No, 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 not to them. 
You see the problem? You see the hypocrisy? He's happy to receive it. Doesn't want it to be shared by those he finds unpleasant, those he doesn't like. And God, in order to teach him and us, I believe, a lesson, God provides two more things, two more things. First thing, he provides a worm. Then he provides a wind. He provides a worm, a worm that comes along, nibbles at the roots of this uh, parasol, uh, and it dies almost instantly. And then to make matters worse, under the blazing sun, he, uh, God provides a scorching east wind. And we read that Jonah's almost faint. He's bordering on the edge of sunstroke. Um, and yet God speaks to him. Verse, um, verse 10. You have been concerned about this plant. Jonah's furious that the plant has died. You've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Jonah is concerned about a plant, but he hasn't, he hasn't planted the seed. He hasn't nurtured it. He hasn't caused it to grow. It's a plant that's here today and gone tomorrow. And yet Jonah has been concerned for its life. Verse 11, what's God concerned about by contrast? Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, which, in which there are more than 120,000 people? And we're going to read that many who don't know their left hand from their right. Spiritually speaking, they're clueless. They know nothing. They know absolutely nothing. Here are people, 120,000 of them, who are made in the image of God, whom God sustains their life every moment of every day, who are spiritually clueless, and who have eternal souls. Which is worth being concerned about more? Jonah? What should you be concerned about? Should you be concerned, passionately, so passionately concerned about your own comfort and ease, and not concerned in any way about these spiritually needy, precious people in that city? Is it right for you to be so callous and unconcerned, Jonah? Well, I think it's very clear, isn't it, from the way the, the, the passage ends, that God is exposing Jonah's selfishness, his pettiness, his hypocrisy, happy to receive uh, mercy, but not willing that it would be shared with other people. And it's very, very, very easy for us to point the finger and say, Jonah, that's disgraceful, Jonah. But I think, if I look at my own heart, I think I can be very like Jonah a lot of the time. God desires to show mercy to the person who stabbed me in the back. Am I concerned that they receive mercy? God is concerned about the person, the relative uh, who has and wants to show them mercy, who has borrowed money from, from us and never given it back again. How about you? God wants to show mercy to the teacher who either reduced you to tears or reduced even, perhaps some of us find it even more difficult, reduced your child to tears. How about you? Do you want mercy for them? Do you want them to be forgiven? 
Or would you really, if you're honest, like a big healthy dose of justice for them? You see, I think we're all a bit like Jonah. We're all happy to receive mercy and forgiveness, but we're reluctant that God shares it, especially with people that we find unpleasant or that we don't like. This is a challenge for us. And in the Bible, and Jesus makes this point really, really clearly in Matthew 18 when he teaches a parable about the unmerciful servant. You see, if you and I fully understand just how great the mercy that we have received is, if we understand how great our debt that has been forgiven really was, then it should motivate and inspire us to show mercy to those in our lives who don't deserve it. And in fact, and here's the next step and the important step, if we refuse to show mercy to others who don't deserve it, then that might indicate we don't really understand God's mercy at all. Jonah wanted justice for Nineveh, not mercy. Jonah wanted mercy for himself, not justice. And then that finishes then with the big question, what about you? What concerns you? Verse 11 again. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Should I not be concerned about that great city? And then you turn over the page and then, hold on, that's Micah 1. Well, that's, that's not an ending. That's not an ending. If you'd gone to the movies uh, and that was the end of the movie, I think you'd want your money back. I think, hold on a minute, how did Jonah react? What did he do? That's, what? what? Can't finish a book like that. And that's the point, isn't it? That's the point. Jonah's hypocrisy, his self-righteousness and his pride are exposed. What about you? What about me? Am I like Jonah? What are you concerned about? Is the question, the haunting question that's left ringing in our ears. Uh, So often we are like Jonah. So often we are concerned primarily about our own comfort and our own ease. And we are unconcerned about the spiritual plight that so many of the people we rub shoulders with in our neighborhoods, in our offices, Uh, at our hospitals, at the the playground or the school gate. As long as I'm okay and mine are okay, then that's fine, isn't it? Well, this chapter, I think, leaves us with two implications of what we should be concerned about. First, we should be concerned for this lost city. We should be concerned for this lost city. God has placed us here, and it's not an accident. It's not an accident. God has called us to this city uh, to love and to serve those around us. Uh, I'm sure lots of you have heard this story before. There's a a story of uh, at the turn of the century where there was a shoe salesman sent to West Africa. Uh, He was there for six months, and after a while he sends a telegram back to head office in London that said, "Uh, situation hopeless, no one wears shoes here, bring me home immediately. Okay, and so he came home. But after, after a while, they sent another salesman to West Africa. For six months, he was there. And then he sends a telegram back that said, Situation fantastic. No one wears shoes here. Send all the shoes you can send me, you can give me. You get the point? 
we often look around, especially uh, in, in the noughties, in the, in the, the, the post-millennium, we, we tend to think, oh, you know, Christianity's under pressure. There's so many, a rising tide of secularism, and, and so many of the, it seems there's, everyone I bump into is an atheist uh, who's criticizing our Christian faith. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, the demise of, of Christendom, it's awful. Well, that's one way to look at it if you want, but... You can also look at it. So many people around you don't know Jesus. And God has put us here to tell them. God has put us here to tell them. To bring them the best news in the world. That God is a God of justice. But a God who wants to show them mercy. A God who wants to show them mercy. You see, we could think of ourselves as a cruise ship where we're all dedicated to our own comfort and ease and pleasure. Or, more biblically, we could think of this church as a lifeboat where we want to reach out with kindness and gentleness and respect and offer people a rescue from a collision course with God. That's what we are here for. That's what we're here for. We're to be concerned for the city and we should be on an exciting, prayerful, missionary endeavor. Because that's why we're here. We should be concerned for a lost city. We should also be concerned for the scary. What I mean by that? Concerned for the scary. You see, there's lots. we're surrounded, increasingly surrounded, by uh, evangelistic opportunities. But often there's some evangelistic opportunities, if we're totally honest, we're really scared to take especially if that evangelistic opportunity involves someone from a different social or ethnic background to us. And so it might be the Hindu uh, in the hospital who's on your ward. Uh, Or it might be the Muslim in your office. It might be the Roman Catholic on your sports team. It might be the atheist that you bump into at the school gate. And we are actually, we think, oh, well, they would never, they would, they would never be interested. I, I, you know, why even try to, to get to know them and, and share the gospel with them? Well, we are called to be people of compassion and kindness. And if you really believe this is true, if you really are convinced this is true, that there is a God who's a God of justice, but also a God of wonderful mercy in Jesus Christ. If you're convinced that's true, then be consistent and share your faith with them. Now, how do you do that? Well, at at the very least, that involves befriending someone, getting to know them, invite them for coffee, go for a drink after work, invite them around to your house for a meal, get to know them and befriend them, whether or not they convert. They're not a project get to know them. And over time, you will get to ask them all sorts of questions, find out about their hopes and dreams, find out about them, get to know them, ask lots and lots of questions. Second thing you're to do is you're to find something about them you admire, ask, admire, and tell them. And then thirdly, there will be a a chance where you get to admit something. You get to admit that you came to realize at some point you were in trouble with God because of your pride and your selfishness and your lust. And yet you discovered that God was a God of mercy. 
We are called to be concerned for the city, called for concern for the scary. What are you concerned about? What are you concerned about? What am I concerned about? What concerns us as a church family? Is it our own comfort and ease? Or with lost, needy, infinitely valuable people that we rub shoulders with every single day? Well, what's God concerned about? Well, he's concerned to show mercy to lost people. And we are called to share his heart and his compassion. Let's pray together.